Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. As we jump into the message today, on April 14, 1921, the operators on the Titanic received a message from other boats in the area that they were heading towards dangerous ice fields. You know what they did? They were busy sending messages to other, from the Titanic passengers back to their loved ones, and they were so busy doing that, uh, telling everybody about how they were having a great time and how this boat was indestructible, that they set the message aside. Uh, so uh, later that night, another message was sent to the Titanic, warning them again of an ice field, and one of the Titanic's radio operators actually replied in Morse code, Shut up, I'm busy. We know the rest of the story, what happened. So what is it about us that tends to ignore warnings until it's too late? Parents, have you ever said, if you do this, then one more time, then I'm going to, and then they do what they, you don't want them to do again, and you threaten again saying, I mean it, one more time. So let's, let's have a little discussion here without creating a family feud. I want you to take a moment, I want you to discuss with someone around you or by yourself, if you think about it, if you're by yourself, how many threats do you have to give your kids' parents to finally get them to do what you want them to do? This also applies outside of kids. Uh, How many times do you have to ask a family member or a friend or a co-worker to do something before they actually do it? And kids, here's what I want you to talk about. How many times do you need to hear that warning from your parents or from your teacher before you're going to listen and do it? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Is it ten times? How many times? Take just about a minute and talk about that. So I hope those of you listening online were as good as the people here. I did not hear any fights at all. No feuds at all. You guys did great. So how many kids said, I always obey the first time? All you have to say is, anybody? No? Two times? Three times? Yeah, we got three. How many ten times? Don't raise your hand. That's not a good idea. Don't do it. Why is it sometimes hard to follow through with punishing your children when you've given plenty of warning, parents? I think it's simple. I think ever since they were born... You never want to hear them cry, and you never want to cause them pain. I think that's something built into us. And, and, and kids, why is it hard to heed a warning for the first time? I think that oftentimes for all of us, kids or adults, we have a hard time heeding a warning because we want to do what we really want to do, and the consequences, well, we don't think they're really going to be that bad or they're going to happen, at least not for some time, so we just want to do what we want to do. And this is actually right where we're at in our one big story journey through the Bible as we work our way through. We've seen over and over again how God continually sends warnings to his people, and they consistently reject them. I hope one of the things that we're all hearing as the strongest message coming through in this series is the incredible loving patience that God has in not wanting to cause pain, not wanting to bring judgment. He doesn't want to cause pain. But we as humanity, we tend to kind of do what we want to do, and we keep causing problems. Today we see God giving a final warning to a small remnant of uh, the people left in Judah. The northern kingdom had long been gone. Judah was dealing with a new superpower on the block called Babylon. And 
who was conquering everyone. And then God chose to speak through Jeremiah, who was called to be a prophet at the age of 20. And don't, don't skip over that. He was called to be a prophet to the entire nation at the age of 20. Jeremiah in verse 1, his calling says the, in chapter 1, though, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God also told Jeremiah in the context there not to marry, to, to continue to give the people a message that destruction was coming. And on top of that, God let Jeremiah know that no one was going to listen to him and that he would, be not, he would not be liked at all by anyone. It, it may have reminded, reminded Jeremiah of the guy named Noah. Remember how he was building this boat out in the middle of the land for a hundred years saying judgment is coming and probably was ridiculed that whole time? See, not only does Jeremiah have a difficult message to share, the other prophets were declaring the exact opposite message, that destruction wasn't going to come. I mean, Jeremiah was not a popular guy. I mean, the Bible identifies that he only had three friends. So basically what you see is God asks Jeremiah to not have a wife, to have no kids, to take a lousy, difficult job, and have only three friends. That's kind of the story. Question, does God have the permission to ask you that same thing? And if so, would you obey him? Jeremiah's life actually challenges us, putting on full display the full range of God's character. And for clarity's sakes, if, if, if you want a happy story where everybody goes home feeling really good about a good time I had by all, then Jeremiah is not your book to read. But if you want to know how to walk out God's truth, in a, a situation where everybody's disagreeing, where they may not listen to you, where, where you want to learn how to live faithfully and well over the long haul, then Jeremiah is a fantastic book to read. Jeremiah's ministry spans five kings, somewhere between 42 and 47 years. During that time, nothing indicates that Jeremiah had ever gotten a positive response from anyone to his message. So he didn't even start with this honeymoon season where people liked him and then they didn't. No, people never liked him. And they didn't dislike him because of his character. It wasn't because he was arrogant or weird or anything like that. They simply didn't like him because of what he was saying. He kept saying God's truth while everybody else wasn't. And Jeremiah had the unenviable task of challenging the, the religious hypocrites, the economic disparity and dishonesty, the oppressive practices of Jude, Judah's leaders, the, the widespread despicable practices of sacrificing their children to the gods, of sexual immorality, and of general evil just way beyond that. He, he's telling hard truth that most of the people would rather ignore. So here's just a snippet of, of what he told the people on a regular basis. Jeremiah 22 says, I will surely make you like a wasteland, like towns not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up your fine cedar beams and throw them into the house. In other words, your house is going to be taken away from you and torn down. Everything that you have is going to be gone. And that's not the kind of preaching that makes you popular, is it? I mean, Jeremiah is, just says judgment is going to happen. I mean, well over 200 years, 300 years, God has been giving warnings. And yet, even here we see God's heart wanting to not see judgment come. In Jeremiah, he asks Jeremiah to say in Jeremiah 5, he says, Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search 
through the squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, then I'll forgive the entire city. I mean, it's almost as if God has decided that if he can lower the bar a little bit, he won't have to follow through with disciplining and judgment. Just one honest person and I'll forgive everything and and, and then we can resume our relationship. That's kind of the, the feeling almost coming through there. And Jeremiah 13 shows us God's heart. He says, if you do not listen, I'll weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. See, God lets people know the pain it gives him, the tears that he will weep because his beloved nation, his people, will be removed from the land he gave them. I think one of the most unpopular announcements Jeremiah made is actually regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple had stood in Jerusalem for over 300 years. The surrounding nations had heard of the wonders God had done for Israel in Egypt and in the wilderness and for David and Solomon. And and the Jerusalem temple was seen as the place where God's throne was. Yet the Jews did not follow God. By this time they were worshiping other gods. In fact, they were offering sacrifices to their pagan gods in the very temple they built to the one true God, along with other horrific acts. And God tells Jeremiah to announce the Babylonian armies are headed to them and they're going to conquer all their neighbors and they're going to come there and they're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and take over Judah and raise the temple and carry the Jews off for exile for 70 years. So for years, Jeremiah tells him this is coming when all the other religious leaders and prophets are preaching prosperity and peace and safety and victory over Babylon. I mean, think about it. Which message would be more popular? Which message is more popular today? Jeremiah is despised by almost everyone. He deals with death threats, murder plots. He deals with imprisonment. He's thrown in the dungeon. He's put in stocks in the public square for people to mock him. He's thrown into a cistern, a well, to die of starvation while stuck in the mud. All by the very people he's trying to help. Jeremiah could have chosen a life of ease and popularity. Instead, he chooses to follow God and give his entire life to God. I mean, one action that showed Jeremiah's great faith and love for the people that God had put in him is before Jerusalem was destroyed, God told Jeremiah, go and purchase a piece of land in the center of Jerusalem. Uh, Now, think about it. This is like a realtor who might come to you today and say, I have a great property for you in the mountains. It's a luxury hotel on it worth about $20 million. I'll sell it to you for $20,000. So what are you going to do to that? You're going to ask the question, the fundamental question, real estate, location, 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 right? You're going to go, what's wrong with this? Why are you giving me such a discounted deal? Those would be wise questions for us to ask. And, and, and if the guy came back and told you, well, it's, it's in the middle of a lawless war zone in some mountains off in Afghanistan, then you'd understand why it's $20,000, right? It's probably not even worth that. See, with Jerusalem on the verge of being overthrown, Jeremiah buying this piece of land in the middle of a battlefield was crazy. To make things even more difficult, this business transaction isn't done in private, it's done in front of many witnesses. The king and all the people already thought Jeremiah was just nuts, declaring destruction, but, but now with this, he's declaring destruction and he's, he's doing what? He's buying a piece of land? That if he's right that he'll never enjoy? 
Can you imagine the gossip that went around? He's not, he's, I mean, the crazy talk from this prophet, right? But Jeremiah obeyed God. And, and why would Jeremiah do this? Honestly, Jeremiah didn't know. It was only after he actually obeyed God that God actually gave him insight to help him understand what was going on in him asking him to do this. And this was it. By purchasing the field, God was asking Jeremiah to show the people that even though they were going to be defeated and taken away from this city, that one day God would lead them back to this land and the promise of his love was still good. And Jeremiah loved the people well enough and loved God most importantly that he did this so well. He knew he'd not see the promises fulfilled. He knew he would not ever be able to enjoy this land because God had said this place was going to be imminently captured and taken the people taken to Babylon for 70 years. But he believed so much in God's love and his sovereignty that he would fulfill his promises to his people that Jeremiah obeyed God's difficult commands and trusted that God would do the humanly impossible. I mean... Think about how hard this must have been to do for four, over four decades. During this time, Jeremiah has some doubts. He has some confusion. We actually see this in his writing, Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah's wrestling with these doubts and pains, and he writes this. He says, you deceive me, Lord. I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. And he goes on and says, But I, if I say, I'm not going to mention his word or speak anymore in his name. And his word in my heart is like a fire, a fire shut up on my bones, and I'm, I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot hold it in. Jeremiah is just so honest. It was tough. It felt cruel to be constantly mocked, to see no change and no growth. But in the end, God's message is like a fire in his bones that he could not put out. So how does he become this kind of person? Well, we see it in the book of Lamentations, a book that is attributed to Jeremiah uh, as having written. Some of you may remember this old worship song based upon Lamentations 3. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Anybody can finish that with me? They are new every morning. Great is, is, is your faithfulness. Now, that's a nice verse that we like to quote, but imagine... Jeremiah singing that after a really difficult day of being mocked all day long and being thrown into a pit to die. The foundation that carried Jeremiah through is that he knew the unconditional, steadfast love of God. I mean, Jeremiah is an example, a great example of, of someone who lives out what we talked about last week in 1 John 4, uh, how our lives will show two things when we know the unconditional love of God. They will show that we are fearless. We're not driven by anxiety. We don't overfunction due to stress or whatever other form anxiety happens in your life. And we have the bandwidth to love others well. And man, did Jeremiah live out a life of, uh, of loving over the long haul. I mean... He could have easily traded his difficult life 
for one of greater ease. After all, Jeremiah was like royalty in Israel. He was actually the son of the high priest who was the high priest while King Josiah was reigning. So was it worth it, his life, that he did? How many of us would have walked away from Jeremiah's assignment? See, Babylon defeats the Jews, destroys the temple, burns Jerusalem. The Jews are carried away as exiles into Babylon. And, and Jeremiah stayed behind in the city to grieve the loss. The Bible actually says he wept bitterly over the destruction, loss of life, the pain that the people around him experienced. These same people who had been so cruel to him, he wept for their pain. Which is why many refer to them as the weeping prophet. The book of Lamentations, is, in its opening lines, records his thoughts about weeping. He's, he's weeping, saying, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow she is, who once was great among the nations. She who was a queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all of her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All of her friends have betrayed her. They have become like enemies. So those left in Jerusalem after Babylon comes wonder what to do. They stay in the land or they flee as refugees to Egypt. What do they do? And they ask Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord and ask God what they should do. And God speaks to Jeremiah and he says this to the people. God is going to promise them that if they stay in the land, that Israel will live and flourish in peace under Babylonian rule and God will have compassion on them. But if they disobey... God will bring the Babylonians against the Egyptians to whom they flee, and the Jews will be killed when the Babylonians conquer the Egyptians. And what do the Jews choose to do? They go to Egypt. After decades of speaking God's warnings and all those things coming true, they still choose what they want. Jeremiah could have, after all that time, left. He could have protected himself. He could have hid in anonymity. Yet even though God said, don't go to Egypt, because if you do, you'll be destroyed there, Jeremiah still goes there with the people. Jeremiah loved the people he was called to with a faithful love that is just astounding. It's actually believed that Jeremiah was killed there in Egypt along with the Jews as prophesied. Many saw Jeremiah as a failure in his own time, his own lifetimes. No one listened to him, no fruit was seen, no, no salvations were seen in the ministry, no growth, but in time, Jeremiah was remembered for his faithfulness. I mean, Jeremiah actually got greater influence after the exile with the Jews in exile, after his death, than he did before. After all the destruction, the exiles meditated on the lessons that Jeremiah the prophet wrote down because those words had come true, and so they began to also pay attention to them for how they should live and the hope that God wanted to bring. They fiercely held on to a common verse that actually we quote a lot today and hold on to, and we should hold on to it. In Jeremiah 29, it says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And this is what we often quote. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And we can all hold on to that because that is God's heart toward every single one of us. 
The book of Jeremiah also provides a foreshadowing of the birth of the Messiah, Jesus, in Jeremiah 23. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Jeremiah also discovers and, 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 and describes the power of the new covenant made by Jesus, picking up and, and contrasts that to the covenant of Moses. In Jeremiah 31, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that was made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God is saying this, that he's going to renew this covenant, make a new covenant with them, and transform, that'll transform their hearts. One day, God will inscribe the law, not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of the people. And this is a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus' perfect forgiveness and the sending of his Holy Spirit to all of us who will follow him and choose to follow him. See, as a way of summarizing Jeremiah's life, there, there are lots of applications, uh, but I think there's really maybe the greatest one. Let's get towards the greatest one by, by getting there this way. Uh, there are things in our world that are incredibly grievous today, right? Morally, our nation is far from God. It seems like every day all we hear is angry voices yelling at each other. We hear so many voices pronouncing judgment. But what we don't hear as loud is how Jeremiah lived for more than 40 years. His cry was a consistent cry of compassionate brokenness, of sadness. I mean, listen to the way Jeremiah describes his sadness, his brokenness over the nation's rebellion toward God. In Jeremiah 9, it says, If only my head were a pool of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. Again, these are the people who tried to kill him and mocked him daily. That's someone who knows the love of God and has the bandwidth to really care. See, that's why I think with all the racial tension and all the other charged issues going on in our culture right now, that listening is such an important first step. In listening, we connect to the pain and the heart of the issue. So we not only understand the issue, but we deeply feel the sadness and the pain of it for the people around us, especially for the people who we may disagree with most strongly on the issues. We need to feel their pain and understand it. See, it's so important to understand the brokenness around us and how that should that should compel us to compassion. People know when you're mad, right? They, 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 they can read it. They can read it in your voice. They can read it in your body posture. But Jeremiah wasn't mad. He was compassionately sad. And I think when you can see 
other people and you're not mad at them and instead you are hurting for them and you're sad for their pain and confusion and all the heartache it's causing, that they can detect that in your voice. They can see it in your posts. Anger doesn't change hearts. The love of God does. And love weeps over sin because love loves the one who is caught in the destruction of sin. It's not that anger is wrong. There are many things to be angry over, and processing our anger in as healthy of a manner as we possibly can is so important, knowing we're probably none of us ever going to be perfect in that. Jeremiah had a difficult message. Think about it. He could have, he could have watered down the Bible and what God was saying, but, but like him, we're called to share the truth, which can be difficult and challenging. I, I know it. It's a challenge in how we leave Quest. Our job is, as followers of Jesus, not to just leave us every Sunday feeling warm and fuzzy going away. If we do that, then we're not reading the Bible and we're not being honest with the Bible. Like Jeremiah, God asks us to share what we believe God is saying is wrong with the world around us, but to do it, all of us, to do it with a voice that comes from a broken heart, not an angry voice. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, spent a lot more time crying than he did yelling. He spent a lot more time in prayer than he did in proclaiming. So how does this look like in our lives? I think Jeremiah's story reminds me of an example I remember hearing years ago, uh, Graham Cook share. Graham has been in ministry for 40 plus years. He's gifted with prophetic words that have been amazingly coming true and just God speaks to him and works through him. But earlier on in his ministry, Graham was having a really difficult time working with someone who he felt was just really arrogant. He just, it was so hard to work with him. And God actually, in praying around that situation, gave him a prophetic word about this man regarding some personal sins in his life, which were unknown to other people and actually were unknown to Graham prior to God sharing that and, and how God was wanting this man to repent and change. Otherwise, some serious consequences would be coming his way because of the sin in his life. So Graham was actually looking forward to giving that word. I mean, wouldn't you? To a person who you really annoyed you, who yeah, was a difficult person, and you got a word like that, you'd go to me, yeah, I'm, this is going to be a fun word to give. I'm going to enjoy this one. A little, little, little payback here, right? He actually drove to the guy's house right away. He got out of the car. I was going to walk up to the door, and, and he said it was like the Holy Spirit just kind of arrested him in that moment and said, if you give that word now, you will be of absolutely no use to me in ministry ever again. And Graham felt led by God to return to his car, and he fasted and prayed by, uh, at the leading of the Lord for 30 days for this guy. At the end of those 30 days, the last thing he wanted to do was to go give that word, word that God had given him to this man. It broke his heart to even think about doing that with this guy. He didn't want to see him have to go through the pain that was going to be required to change the, the stuff that needed to be changed. And see, that's exactly what God had done in Jeremiah's heart, too. We want to make sure that when we communicate, our words and our actions reflect how God loves us. And people are moved by that Jeremiah, by that Jesus kind of love. See, that's why really knowing the love of God is so critical to us personally. When we experience the love of God ourselves, then you become released to love others. 
It's his love in you that gives you the ability and the right tone to be in relationships even above whatever difference you're going to face. And here's a truth you can hold on to, but none of us probably want to hold on to this one. God brings difficult people in our lives because difficult people help teach us how to love deeply. And if we can love difficult people, then anyone else is a pushover for us. So maybe here's some action steps as the worship team comes on back. So what I'm not saying is, I'm not saying don't have strong opinions or strong feelings. But ask yourself, what is heard and seen most in your life? Is it anger? Or is it a compassionate brokenness toward people who you're angry with, who threaten your way of life, who you disagree with, who threaten your morality or the morality of our country? See, as a church, we believe social reform and voting in the best leaders. We believe all that stuff is part of the equation. But we know that those actions in and of themselves will not bring the change that's needed. Changed hearts is what we focus on. And we can only do that when relationships are the mission, when we have that relationship with God and we know His love, and out of that relationship, we have loving relationship with other people around us. See, when we as a church give our lives to God, and we, we, we automatically are saying, we want to let you break our hearts for those around us instead of being mad at them. And only when we truly love do we actually, only when we do that do we actually learn to truly love people. So maybe the first step for us is, is, is picture the people you get most angry at. Maybe it's a politician, maybe it's a pundit on TV, or maybe it's your neighbor who believes what that person you hate on TV is saying. I don't know who it is. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Who makes you the most angry? Pray first and let your heart be changed before you post on Facebook, before you rail on your spouse or your family member, or before you confront that person who offended you. We live in a culture of outrage, a culture that lashes out and cancels anyone they, can disagree, they disagree with. I mean, anger is an emotion given by God. So let's not discount that. But anger is also an emotion that God asks us to carefully process and compassionately direct how we express it. James, the brother of Jesus, during a great time of persecution against the church, when things were a great injustice was being done against Christians, writes to the Christians and says in James 1, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray that this week that you would come to each one of us. And Lord, would you unearth, would you expose that anger that we feel? The anger that sometimes we're not even fully aware of because we've justified how we think and our behavior so strongly that we don't even realize there's still anger there. Lord, would you come and unearth that? And Lord, would you come and give us all by the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit the ability for our hearts to be broken for the pain, the difficulty that's being created by the sin all around us. By our sin, 
and by the sin of those people who we feel are threats to our way of life. And would you help us out of that to love in such a powerful way that our nation goes from a culture of outrage to a culture of compassion and unity. We ask that your spirit would begin this work in each one of us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're listening with us online, we're gonna thank you for joining us. You can go to questvineyard.org slash live and you can enjoy a pre-recorded version of the song we're gonna worship to right now. I think you'll wanna do that because I think God wants to speak to us and draw all of our hearts together in worship. Would you stand and worship? We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.